Welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sports and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode, I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in elite sports, helping athletes maximise their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. In this episode, I'm catching up with Caroline McManus, lead performance scientist with rowing in high, with High Performance Sport New Zealand. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. I am really pleased to get to catch up with you. It has been such a long time since we spoke, and it's exciting to bring some international flavour to the show. It's uh, it's Friday evening here in Ireland, and it's Saturday morning over your side of the world, and you're working. So I'll start by asking, where are you, and what are you doing today? Okay. Um, thanks for having me on, Bruce. Uh, delighted to come on and chat. And as, as you said, uh, we haven't spoken in a long time, so um, good good to connect um, and, and love what you're doing with this podcast. Um, so this morning I'm out at Lake Carpiro, which is, um, it's in the middle of the North Island in um, New Zealand. Um, and this is the centralized base for the elite rowing program. And this is where I, where I am. Um, I'm housed. Basically, I'm here day to day. A beautiful, idyllic uh, location. We're on our building overlooks the lake, so it, it, it couldn't get, it couldn't get better. Um, and our rowers have what we call a squad session this morning, so I have to come in and do some analysis on that um, today. We, we we have a team that uh, rotates the Saturdays for this. Okay, so it's not a, not every Saturday you're in there working away. No, it's not. Thankfully, <laughs> good. Well, what does, so that leads me nicely into what does a typical day for you look like in your job? What would you normally be doing? Do you see athletes every day, or are you doing different things on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, yeah, the, th- things are different day to day, but um, yeah, because the athletes are here all the time, we'll see athletes. You know, maybe not the same one every day, but we will see athletes every day. Um, in the office environment, I'm sitting in and around the coaches as well. So we have seven coaches, we elite, elite coaches we work with. So um, I have interactions with them daily. So earlier in the week, obviously, what we look at generally is our load, our load monitoring um, in, in terms of how the athletes are tracking um, and if we need to make any shifts to, you know, to their training or, or flags. Um, but also in there. Also in there, what we could be doing is whether it be on water monitoring, um, lab or, or gym monitoring. Um, I don't use a lab as much as I would have done in Ireland because it's such a big program. But we can we can talk about that again later. Um, sure. And in there and in there, it could be meetings with coaches, meeting with other service providers or 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 athletes. So um, it's a busy day. It's a pretty high intensity environment here. Um, but it's um, yeah, there's good variety in there. Great. Well, maybe we might dig into that a little bit. So you mentioned mm-hmm. there that you monitor the training load of the athletes. What do you do to monitor their training loads? So what we do is we use training peaks, um, solely training peaks. Um, we've come in and out of using um, RPE uh, type load. Um, but training actually, training peaks. Pe- yeah, just, just for heart, heart rate. Yep. So they wear heart rate monitors for every session um, and they, they are uploaded. And uh, that's how we monitor monitor training. Um, we also have our own systems in terms of looking at GPS, um, where the heart rate data pops on as well. So um, workload, et cetera. So, yeah, that's what we do. And we have a squad of about uh, 50 between the men and the women. Um, and, yeah, it's just um, we've got some really good people who work on the data, to be honest, to make it look nice so we can present it out of training peaks and in a, in a format that's fairly straightforward for us. For both us and and the coaches, most importantly. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's actually something interesting. That's something I always like to ask is that, you know, when you're doing a lot of monitoring and testing on athletes like that, how do you find that you manage the data and take what can be a large volume of fairly complicated data and condense it down into something that the athletes and the coaches can understand? Uh, how, how do you go about doing that? So that's a, re- I mean, I think that's a really good question. And, and for any um, aspiring practitioners, that's something they should always come back to because we get so excited about what we can measure um, and what and what we can present, but but how they interlink is going to be big. But also, does it answer the question of what the coach is looking for? Um, and I think um, that the mistakes we can make, and I've made them over the years myself, is actually is it telling us anything other than what the coach already knows? Um, so we generally try to keep it to the to, as, as simple as that is. We talk to the coach. I, I, I've suggested a number of uh, of um, of markers or of of test implications, and you know they've been well. We don't need it because I already know from this perspective, and, and that's fine. We work with that. But our real staples are, you know, um, to track how athletes are conditioning wise. We're working in an endurance sport, so it's really important uh, for us to know how they are tracking within the program. Um, it's a big volume program, and uh, step testing is is the is the key for us on that. So we have regular step tests through the year. Um, I so that's like a, a, a an enjoy a step test a, a test on the rower in the lab where they be or or is it out in the water they do it. We do both, Bruce. So yeah. we now have the which which has been something new that's come into rowing is like on the air we can use wattage for our um, workloads. Uh, we can now do that in the water. So we do both because there is actually a difference. The the transfer from the erg, while it's rowing specific, it is a bit different on the water. Um, because it's such a big program, and I and I did start doing this a little bit in Ireland, is, is I don't always do it in the lab because you can really only do one, one to two at a time in the lab. Uh, when I want to look at metabolic data in particular, we'll definitely um, use the lab um, for VO2s or, or, or economy or efficiencies or, or, or what. But um, what we do is we actually set them off in waves and we just do the step tests. It could be 10 athletes going at a time, four of us testing on them. We set the temperatures um, to a controlled you know, temperature for each, each test and we get through the 50 athletes within two days. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, it's, <laughs> I'd like to see that in action. That's impressive. It's efficient. And then, and then you just put all your time into um, data entry, data analysis, and then feedback. So again, back to what your question of, of what do you do with all of that data? Um, back to people with experience in in um, in managing large large volumes of data have set up macros and um, spreadsheets for us to be able to to do that in a time efficient manner. So to try and automate um, to a certain degree that is exactly to a certain yeah. degree. I mean, it, it, you, I I never want to automate it too much, and I think come back to this is is that sometimes not sometimes, actually often we have to look at the data and look at it. And, and this is one thing actually with, with the younger practitioners that have come in is they don't, when they have something we look to work on is them identifying when something looks wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if just because that's what the analysis has spat out, um, sometimes that's not right. And, and whether it's maybe the athlete is, is telling us the athlete has to work a lot lower you know, think about the experience of the athlete, think about um, their performance tests. And we'll always come back to the performances. Where where can they perform on those, their 2Ks or their 5Ks or on water? 
um, or if there's just an anomaly in in a heart rate or a lactate, and and that's a huge teaching point is what doesn't look right, and then we can go back and we can delve into it. Um, sure. So I do think while getting reports automated data, it's really really important for us to be able to identify with the data. And as a, I mean, you'll know this yourself as a practitioner you never become really, really comfortable with it until you do years and years of just looking at it and, and processing it. Yeah, I still second guess myself all the time. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's funny. It's funny you should say that because we were, I was on the water with a coach um, maybe about six weeks ago. And one of the, one of the lactates I was doing on, on a, a verification um, test, the athletes were going really, really well, but really well to the point you were going, you know, they're, they're world champion athletes yet they were going so well it didn't make sense to me so i i questioned me and, and my you know so i i redid and i redid and we retested and, and that's the conversation we actually had is we'll never just believe what it is so we want to we want to check and recheck and i think always come back to that is if we second guess ourselves we probably know we're we're going to delve into to make sure we're our, our data is a little bit more accurate or telling the right story yeah, I remember I had one athlete in for testing and he was an, an excellent, really high standard athlete, mm. but his VO2 max came out exceptionally high. Now, mm. maybe 10% higher than I was expecting it to be from his previous oh, tests, wow. you know, but like mm. still plausible, but I, I just went back and checked and I noticed then I had pushed the, 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 the pressure in wrong at the start. I'd entered some of the yes. atmospheric data. So when I corrected that and went back, everything looked a bit more normal. But yeah. had you not second-guessed yourself there and, and put that result out, you know, it's, mm. good, it's good to be just, just be critical of yourself from time to time and, and always just double-check things, I guess. And as scientists, um, I think that's a requirement for us, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. To be critical, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, I'm always telling the students to just be wary of every, everything that they see, no matter what the source is, just question, does it sound right? Does it seem right? Um, and, and, and try and verify it themselves. Mm -hmm. So from that, so, you know, you've, you've collected all that data, you have generated reports, you've checked the reports. Um, how, how does that go into informing what your athletes do on a day-to-day -day basis or into your annual training plan? Um, how do you apply that data then? Um, well, they, they use the data that we've, um, that we've literally presented. So we, we present it with the coach. It all comes back to, it's a coach-led program. So everything we do will be done with the coach. Um, so, you know, through a feedback session, if they've progressed, we'll look at ways of progressing on, on their workloads. Um, because obviously sometimes the jumps can be big, that there's a big cost to that as well. Um, and, and, and that'll, you know, that'll actually probably spill over into nutrition where there's a, a greater energy cost. Um, and yeah, it's, it's actually fairly straightforward is, is this, this, these are your training zones and we'll work off them. Um, so the ERG is very easy to work off. And as I said, our, our system for on the water allows us to look at that as well when there's gates on the boat. Um, there's a huge amount of data comes off the boats. Um, my colleague who works sort of in the PTA bioma biomechanics area is actually working on, on, on bigger data work for, for that, which is beyond my expertise for sure. <laughs> Uh, very good. Um, you you kind of hinted at it there, there. So, what about the you know the relationships that you develop with the coaches and the athletes? How do you you know maximize the, or how how much value do you place on the relationships that you develop with your athletes and coaches in order to get the most out of what you're doing with them? Yeah, that that's for me paramount, and um, I think 
if I'm ever given feedback, one of the things is, is your interpersonal skills is something you always work on. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Um, like I said, it's, it's coach led the coaches. It's, it's, it's really at the end of the day, the coach and the athlete. So spending time on that relationship, it has to be first on your agenda. I think, you know, we all come out of uni and I've said this, I think recently we come out of uni with a degree or with a master's or with a PhD. So we're, we're, we're smart and clever enough to learn the trade. Um, but sometimes where people can fall down is, is not spending the time on, on, um, that relationship with the coach, um, and with the athlete. So I think first and foremost is with the coaches, finding out what works for them, what doesn't. And that actually, that was a question I was asked coming over here was, you know, what would you do when you get here? And I, and I kind of was like, well, I would come in and try and figure out what, what's working for everybody. You're not coming in to try and change anything or change the world. Um, what is it the coaches respond to um, or they find the most useful info? And, and, and from there, you're going to refine. But you just got, you've got to make sure what you deliver is what the coach has required or your service team has required consistently um, to be able to create that relationship before you look at wanting to change anything. And I think that's probably the key is as um, you know, new grads, or we grab onto some some um, information that we've learned or that we've read, and we want to, you know, we want to run with it. Um, and I think this is where I'd always like to say is we're evidence informed rather than always. We you know we say we work as an ev evidence based. We do, but we have to be evidence informed because we can't just take something that might have been in isolation and say we should definitely do this within the context of a big you know, complex program that, um, and, and it may not fit. And often the coach knows it won't fit. Does that? Yeah, no, I what you're saying yeah. yeah, yeah. And that could, uh, and that could also vary from coach to coach or from group to group. It, if you're Absolutely. And that's, again, I love, I love that you're picking up on all of these points is no one coach I've worked with. I'd necessarily work exactly the same with, um, because you, it's, it's, it's like meeting people, isn't it? It's, it's like with your kids, it's like with, um, colleagues, we, we have to figure out the relationships and, and, um, for good, robust relationships, you have to spend the time. Um, sometimes I can see people get frustrated, but until you, until you really nail the, the interpersonal relationship, um, it's going to be a hard road in terms of trying to make progress from your perspective. Yeah. I think I heard you mm. say recently as well, that. Um, if you were, you know, people who might be coming to you looking for work or work experience, you're, you, you know, if they have their degree or their qualification, you know, they're able to learn, but you like someone who has those good skills because you can teach them what you need them to know, but they have to be able to deal with people in order to, yeah. to do that effect or to apply their knowledge effectively. Uh, absolutely. And I think, and you would have seen the people that came in when we were working across over the years is it's those people that got the jobs. They took initiative. They were interested. They wanted to volunteer. And I mean, they're the people you want and they're very intelligent people. And, and yes, they're in the industry or, or in a similar industry since. But because they were keen and um, keen and, 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 and likable because of how they approached wanting, wanting to get experiences, jumped out so much that you can't. It's funny now, this is a bit of an awkward segue now, seeing as how you just yeah. put that. I was thinking about it recently and I, I was saying to, uh, talking to my wife about it, that 
you, I, I credit you for giving me a kind of a, a leg up in my career. I don't know. I don't want to age us now, but it was a, a, a few years ago back in, <laughs> when you were working down in the University of Limerick. And the reason I say I don't want to age us is because I think I actually wrote you a pro, like an actual letter and posted us. It was, it wasn't, wow. yeah, I have a vague, I have a vague memory of doing that, asking, could I come down and help out, uh, when I was on my summer holidays from, from, from university. And I have, I went down and spent a, a couple of weekends just helping out with you, the testing that you were doing with the rowing. And yes, yeah, I, I, there's so much stuff I'd forgotten about. So there was the odd couple of weekends that I came down and helped out and I got to meet you and, and a few other people that worked down there. And then that led on to doing something else with the, the coaching forum that was on down there. Yes, I remember. And I met someone else and that led on to something else and it led on to something else. So it was, you know, asking for that experience, getting down there, meeting you, developing relationships with a few people. I really think that that was critical to, to me getting, getting going in my career. And the, you took the initiative, and that's what that's I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I I don't remember the letter. I thought it was an email, but I do remember having you come up to us. Um, and I mean from the get go, exactly. This is why you're still doing what you're doing. Um, you were interested. Um, you obviously had the skills, and people liked you. You know for that reason. Yeah, I say to our students then just to take that initiative themselves, and if they're going out to do. If you're going out to do work placement, if you're going to do anything, even if it's just one day going mm-hmm. working somewhere, treat it as if it is the, the your dream job and that you're getting paid your dream salary for doing it. Even if you're but, not getting any, go in and treat it as if it is your dream job. Do your best yeah. because particularly in Ireland, um, the, the pool of people is very small. So, you, you, you know, you keep meeting the same people over and over again. Uh, and there, those relationships can become really, really important. Yeah. I, and I like the way you say that, like treat it like your dream job because for me, this is my, you know, I've been working in my dream job for over 20 years. Um, and, and other, and I think, I mean, I suppose I'm talking from my perspective. I think um, mentors are always willing to do that. Um, so, and I, and I say mentors because I, I studied in Sydney a long time ago. And I remember it was my nutrition lecture. I just got chatting to her and she set up experience for me with the New South Wales Academy at the time. And for those, it was those reasons, I think, showed your interest, showed where you wanted to go. And um, they, people will just give you, I mean, it's, it's, it, it surprised me at the time, but actually now that I've given people opportunities too, or you have, or it, you want to give people with that kind of enthusiasm um, and, and get up and go those, those opportunities, because they're the ones you want to work with you, right? Absolutely. It's really like it can, you, the passion you have for your job really shines through there. So on it, like, what is your favorite aspect of your job? What do you really enjoy the most of it? What's the, your favorite part of it? Um, fun, funny you should say that because I, I um, gave some feedback to a, a 20-year-old athlete who has got um, huge capacity. And, and, I, and then that example I spoke about on the water recently, um, when we see shifts in, and it's generally conditioning, but when you can get the whole picture, so I'm not just talking from a physiological perspective, we work with, you know, teams of nutrition, strength and conditioning, physio, psych, um, medical. Um, and we've worked hugely on, you know, athletes being able to fuel properly to be able to make adaptation. Um, and to see that actually come into fruition and you're looking at going, I didn't think they could go this much faster and they're going this much faster and it's training. 
Um, that's the stuff that excites me. And I say it to them, I'm like, this is the stuff I get excited about. Our, um, I think our single scholar, our female single scholar said to me recently, you know, oh, having you at events is great. And, and, I, and I talked to her and I said, you know, I don't love pinnacle events because really my expertise is, is, is out the window at that point. You know, I'm, I'm there just to support and help. And that's part, and that is part of the role. But where I get the biggest, um, the biggest, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, satisfaction for my job is when I see those shifts. You're going, that program, you, you approaching that program, you know, at the right. So, so I think a big thing sometimes is educating an athlete that either not going all out or not, you know, is, is finding that balance within the program. Um, and then to see those shifts on, you know, while they're getting sleep right, while they're getting nutrition right, while they're getting, you know, the, the, they're getting stronger in the gym and it's, they're, they're not getting injured. You just, you, you leave that day going, no, that's why I'm doing it. You know, you can see them yeah, getting closer to their goals. Mm. That's how you know you're winning at your job is when, when yes, you see those. Yes, exactly. Happens. And then, yes, the, the pinnacle events are great because you get to watch them race. Um, but it's really the coach and the athlete at the pinnacle event. You know, it's, it's, it, it, that's where, I mean, I think that's where we are referred to as backroom staff. We are. Um, and one, I suppose one thing I'd probably, and I don't know if I'm, if, if this is something you want me to move into, but um, one thing I'd probably always say to practitioners as well is, is, you know, if you think you'll have a lot of kudos or recognition for your job, it's not for you because, um, backroom staff you don't see um and I suppose I'm not a huge and I don't know you probably probably know this I'm not a I, I don't like posting myself with athletes that I work with you know um on Instagram on whatever um and I think just remember that come back to why you're doing it um and your values with within the sport by saying I got to work with you know a double Olympic champ you know that that for me isn't what the job's about um and selling that now I've had people come up against me saying well your profile isn't going to be good then Caroline and I said well I'll I'll go with that I have, my, my work has to speak loudly more loudly than me selling myself to the world and who I work with so that that's just something I think in the world that we live in that's that's highly social media led just to always always remember that yeah that's yeah it's contentious yeah. but no, I don't. I agree with you. I think that it, the quality of your work is always more important about the appearance of your work um, mm. and what you're doing. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, can you quietly do do things well, be well behind the scenes? That's what you're required to do. That's what, what people need you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the, like I, I always joke and say it's it's the less glamorous side of, of high performance sport. You're there before the athletes wake up. You're working until they go to bed, and that's just the nature of it. You're you're you're, yeah. you're you, you get now. It's it, I I enjoy it. Um, it's great to be able to participate and be a part, a small part of those. The, the competitions and 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 the hope the successes and sometimes the failures that come along with us and um, that's all part and parcel of but you're never going to be front and center doing this job absolutely yeah and I'll, i like to hear you say that as well we still love it i mean you, you can be working 16 17 hour days when you're at a pinnacle event and you're absolutely knackered but the energy you, you have to bring to it um and the team you get to work with because there's always there's always banter and there's always fun as well as as when we have to get the heads down you know 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So my, yeah, my favorite photographs and things like you say are not with the athletes. They're with the people yeah. that you're spending the time with and working with most behind the scenes. They're mm-hmm. the, they're the really good memories. Um, very good. Well, I, what I wanted, there's another couple of asked questions I wanted to ask, like now you're over in New Zealand. We, we, we've hinted that you, you started your career, obviously back in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So how did you find the transition from, from Ireland to New Zealand? Um, well, is, is the sporting culture very different over there? Is the setup very different or, or is it similar? Uh, how, how does that feel to you now that you're over there? Yeah. Um, so, so on the get go, I have to say where we are is quite Irish. So I feel quite at home. It's um, countryside. If there wasn't for native trees, you could feel like you're in 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 Ireland. Um, so from that perspective, it's easy. The people are are very similar, I think, um, to us. I, I I I love it. We love it here as a family. Um, I suppose a big difference from a job perspective is the size of the program. So I would have worked across sports in Ireland, um, and none of the programs were as big as this one program. Rowing is is one of the um, priority or tier one sports in in New Zealand um so as I as I mentioned earlier we, you know seven coaches about 50 athletes um and then we have quite quite a few support team around that um and then and then we'll also do some coaching education to our age group coaches or or aspiring coaches um the ones that support our our age group or regional programs I actually don't know. How big is the, the rowing program in Ireland at the moment? I'm not familiar with the... How, how, what, uh, I, I actually don't know, but it's bigger than it was before I left because I yeah. suppose um, I worked through what the 2016 game left in January 2017 um, and maybe there was 10 on the program. But okay, since right. I've since I've left, I mean, um, the program has become even more successful than it was, you know, um, after, after Rio. So um, to see that, to see a legacy already, um, being set by, by Gary and Paul was, um, was, it's pretty cool to watch on to see Ireland up there in in, in the racing. Um, Very good. Yeah. Mm. And in terms of, I suppose there's probably some things that are similar over there, Ireland, New Zealand, similar sized countries. I don't know, like budget wise, how are you fixed? Do you like, do you guys have as a tier one program? Are you, do you have free reign to do what you want or do you have to work within certain constraints? It's a really good question. Um, and I, I, I spoke about this recently to, I think it was a, a pro sport, um, I believe it's very similar to Ireland. So, you you know, in any of the um, high performance programs we work in, we're always on a, con- a budget constraint. So you have to be very focused on what you're going to introduce, um, if, if, if we could introduce it at all. New Zealand's the same. So the scale is just bigger because, so it seems like the budget is bigger if we were to compare like with like. But actually, when you look at the size of the program, it's very, very similar. And And like that, I've had to, on a couple of things that I've introduced, I've had to really put um, cases forward or think a little bit outside the box so that we could um, get what we needed. Um, and, you know, there are, we look, we look on at the country and we, we almost model our, you know, as practitioners, we model on the countries that have the big budgets that can do everything that they want. It's the same when we go to pinnacle events, we've probably got a real basic um, tent is what we call it compared to another country that might be nicknamed the Taj Mahal, you know. Um, but but what we do is we make sure that everything that they, and I heard somebody say recently, you know, what are the basics? But we actually do the basics really well from a recovery perspective. So food, training, 
um, and, and we ensure that that happens um, as best as possible. Um, probably one of the things we've, um, the challenges we've come up against recently is, is in our preparation for Tokyo, which has obviously been postponed, um, and using the heat chambers around New Zealand. And with the program that's in rowing, it's, it's, it's even hard to get away from here when we're, when we're really training um, the big blocks. Um, so to take them out of their environment to then put them in a lab that, you know, two athletes can fit in. And there's another lab um, a little bit further away. Where you can control the temperature and simulate competition and uh, scenarios. Exactly. You know, we're looking to see who struggles and then what, putting measures around, around them or even the ones that don't struggle, what we can add on top of their pre-cooling um, and, and, and basically their overall um, strategy, pre-cooling strategy. Um, and what we've looked to do is actually modify our gym. So where our ergs and our bikes are. Um, and we would have done that, Bruce, over the years in the labs. Um, you know, you, you get it to a temperature and humidity that you feel is enough to um, elicit a high enough um, heat stress response or heat strain response um, so that you know you're going to get some, some adaptation. And that's actually what we're going at here. We'll still use the heat chambers for some specifics. We're really trying to um, uh, measure a change of something that we're implementing. But on the whole, all of our heat training will happen in the gym based on changes that we've made in there. Very good. You hinted mm. at something there. It's, it, it just I want to go back a couple of steps. Yeah. Uh, my, in the last episode, I was talking to Karen Williams, who's the head of performance planning with British Gymnastics. And one of the things she said really echoed what, what you said there. She calls them brilliant basics, just doing yes. the simple things right. Uh, making mm. sure you get the basics correct. Exactly what you said there. Cover off the bases before you look for the bright and shiny and expensive things that you might want to add mm. into your program. So I'm, I'm wondering, is that going to be a common theme that I'm going to hear from people as, as, I, yeah. as I progress through this? And I think you'll see, I mean, you, you'll see this as well, um, but, but for the aspiring practitioners, you'll always see our more successful athletes don't look for anything shiny. They're probably our least, uh, they're athletes that, that take up the least amount of your time, even though you want them to, you know, yeah. um, but they just get out there and consistently do it every single day. Um, yes, we'll be on, as I said, nutrition for in an endurance program is always going to be massive um, to make sure that they get the right amount of energy to be able to, to do the program that you, you're, you know, that you're working with. Um, but they, your, your serial medal winners, and it's, and I think it's, it's, it's in data around the world is your serial medal winners are probably, they're the most simple, they have the most simple approach because they do exactly what you just referred to is those, those const, those consistent, um, blocks, let's call them blocks of what they need to do. So am I sleeping enough? Am I eating enough? Am I eating enough of the right foods? Um, am I drinking enough? Okay, now I'm am I working at the right intensities to actually make? And I think that was one thing that that example I gave of of the women's boat I was on the water with. It was the athlete herself that um, that actually asked for this particular verification session because she said we were going so fast that she said I could have just not thought about it. You know, we're going fast and that's great, um, but actually she said she didn't feel like she was working hard enough. And I thought, wow, that yeah. that blow that blew me away on that day, and I said, this is why she could, they continue to be as good as they are, 
Um, and you see that, as I said, you see that with the most successful. They'll just continue to do what needs to be done rather than is there a silver bullet or can I do this a lot, you know? Yeah, it's, it's almost like a tunnel vision, a blinkered approach. They are just focused on what needs to be done and not mm. distracted um, yes. beyond that. Mm. And we can, we can add a little bit. Um, and I think it was, um, a quote, Joe Conway said it to me. Um, what did he say? It was like the icing, it was at the icing on the cake, but, but he said, that's all it is. He said, it's, it's almost the basics dressed up as the icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you, all of those little things that we add that we look, or people might see as silver bullets is at the end of the day, they're still part of the, the big, the basics. Yeah, I think, and sometimes as well, we get sound bites from those little things, and they're the things that the media might pick up on when they're interviewing an athlete. That oh, this one thing is what led to the success of a particular athlete. But there's a huge pyramid of work that went in underneath that tiny little cherry on top. You're you're absolutely right, and I think that brings me on. I think I did want to make a point on um, on you know taking research papers or um, studies in isolation, and um, you know, we can get very excited about what they do or what they might bring to a program. But actually, when you try and um, put it on top of maybe what you're already what you've already planned for, it may not be appropriate. Um, and so, you know, I, I do hear and I, I was this I was this person 15 years ago. You know, why do we do so much volume in a rowing program? Well, let's go back to energy systems. That's why, actually, um, it isn't, you know, yes, it's only between a five and a half and, and seven and a half minute minute race but look at where um the majority of that race comes from from an energy system perspective and and that's where you have to spend most of your time um and i still have people why are you doing all of this training why you know more high intensity more this more that you know all of those components are going to be part of a program but what's um appropriate at times when you're trying to develop a big and as you just said i liked the pyramid because you're you're developing something big to allow them actually to to rise even further. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was talking to a student today who was asking me about this, like, hey, you know, how much volume or how much intensity? And I was just saying that if we come back from the elite level to, to maybe sub-elite where some of our graduates might be going out and starting out their careers working with people, I find we have a lot of people who are, I call them just one-speed wonders. They go out and do all their training at the same intensity, whether it's a, a long run or a relatively short run or a cycle or a swim or whatever. It's all just at the one intensity and I was trying to explain that you know if an, you need an athlete sometimes just to lower the intensity increase to the volume to the point where they might feel like this isn't a particularly hard session I'm not really working here but that's what's going to get them the improvements that they're looking for and to try and it comes back to building that trust and building the relationship that they'll you know believe what you're saying to them they'll put it into practice hopefully see the results and then all that that trust is further enhanced then Absolutely. And I think that comes back to your objective data too, doesn't it, Bruce? That helps with your relationship building, that if you can show them in a test that they're continuing to improve, and then ultimately that, and, and it'll always transfer into uh, performance, you know, you, you know that. And then when they see that change in performance, it's like, ah, now often you'll have to come back and remind them, but that's where your relationship really gets, uh, gets moved on, I think. Yeah, it's important. I want to maybe change direction just a little bit, Caroline, because I yeah. do think you over the years, you've had um, you've had wonderful opportunity to work with loads of coaches. Um, and I'm assuming in that time you've worked with some really good coaches or coaches that you might have admired and looked up to. And again, a lot of our, our listeners, our students might be going out thinking of starting a career as a coach. So what qualities 
stand out to you in sorry in the coaches that stood out to you as good coaches what are the qualities that they had what do you think um they brought to the game um knowledge number one of the sport and i think um you know the get-go the best coaches have knowledge and passion beyond what we could probably ever wish to have um the coaches that can um communicate well okay coming back to communication too um and and the coaches who can actually sift out um sift out the the bs from from what's actually really useful they'll they can always simplify it and i think those coaches get the best out of athletes and i've watched um a number of coaches over the years The, the other one that I absolutely love, and I suppose who, who would I attribute this to? Maybe Gary Keegan is really challenging me. And I think I have to say is, you know, at the beginning of my career is more of a technician, you're testing, you're giving data back, but you're not necessarily making the decisions or any, any uh, strong critical thinking, I suppose, or decision-making. Um, and I think I came to it one day and he really put it on the line and he, he just said, Caroline, how much? And I thought, oh my gosh, this is risky. What, what I'm, you know, and I was really out of my comfort zone, but actually it was a, probably a growth time as well. And it, it, it made me confident on, I suppose, um, on, on pushing the limits um, in, in my own decision making. And they're the coaches, I have to say, that have probably made, you know, bigger impacts on me. And I think um, I, I'll stay on that boxing one because I suppose it was it was all a, um, an evolution of their their program at the time is. Billy Walsh and Zoranti are in there. And I had a um, presentation a couple of years ago to do here at our High Performance Summit. And they were the three coaches I had up on the, on, I put up a heap of coaches that have influenced me, whether it's good or bad. Um, and I said, they were probably one of the bigger influences earlier in my career. Um, I had a couple of testing ones. Um, and then I've moved into some more, you know, later in my career um, in the last last 10 years and indeed over here probably will come away from here having worked with a couple of coaches that I would say could um could uh, probably do well in other sports they're that good okay right and that's Mm. interesting so again that just you mentioned coming away from there so look into the future now for for the immediate future for you guys you mentioned obviously Tokyo 2020 is now Tokyo 2021 um what about the the status of other competitions like the the world championships and the world cup have they been moved for you guys and does that have a big impact on your 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 training plan um not hugely because with the world cups what we generally try to do is is we train through apart from the travel the travel is maybe what's what's our mini taper so we don't really taper for the their their events for us to get a, a gauge of how training is going from a performance perspective. Um, COVID is going to be very much the um, driving factor in whether we travel pre pre Tokyo. Um, to be honest, so at the moment, <coughs> excuse me, it's not it's not looking hugely likely that we will be traveling. Obviously, New Zealand has had a quite um, strict measures in place as well, so from a health, a global health perspective or a, um, a national health perspective, that, that will have to come into play too. Um, I think um, historically, and it's not saying this, this will be the case, is New Zealand tends to um, perform well coming off the big blocks of training that we do. Um, but we will miss racing if, if we don't get to, to see that. So there won't be a world champs before the Olympics. 
this year, uh, 2021, there'll be a, a world champs later in the year. I think it's October. Um, so, you know, Olympics will happen July into all, early August. Um, and then either athletes, some athletes will stick around, some won't. Um, and it's probably a good opportunity to blood newer, newer rowers. Um, but it'll be a shortened cycle, obviously, for Paris. Do you have juniors there with you as well, or is it just all seniors that are based? Uh, all, all, yeah, the elites are all um, seniors. Um, we do have campaigns where the 23s and the juniors come in. And generally, you'll see them, their campaigns are when the elite team is away for World Cups. So it allows us to be able to spend some time with those coaches and, and give a little feedback to, to athletes. Um, but we've this year obviously has been different. So it's just trying to um, make sure the building isn't overflowing too much and looking for, you know, for other things so that they're getting the opportunity to be here and row around the elites. Um, so, yeah, no, the juniors are still, I mean, they're in a school program, so they'll only bring them together for short periods. Is rowing big enough over there that you guys have um, a, a decent number of athletes coming through, or do you have to do you have a talent ID program or anything like that going? It's massive. I think I was blown away when I got here. Um, there's an event called Maddie Cup. You should look it up. Actually, I think it's like the largest sporting event in the Southern Hemisphere. Or it's a schools schools event. Really, and it was here um, maybe a month after I arrived in 2017, and I literally—I mean, it's bigger than the senior events or club events. It was huge. Um, all schools in the North Island, or sorry, in in New Zealand, it'll either be here one year or in the um, South Island in Twizel on other years, and it is—it blew me away the number of kids that row. So there's a there's a good feeder, um, you know, system that does that. Um, I do think, um, and without getting in my soapbox, I think some of the bigger schools tend to work those assets. It's the same as what we see in other sports in Ireland and here um, as well as possibly some of those kids are worked too, too much too soon. You know, back to what's appropriate volume, what's appropriate intensity to what you said earlier is know the training history and background of the athlete that you work with, whether they be a kid or newer to the sport. Um, and that what should dictate the amount of volume and how you progress, progress them. So yeah, a lot, a lot of the kids in the um, program do come out of have road in school. Um, not all of them have come through juniors, the international team, but most of them will have come through the under 23 um, uh, campaigns. That's successfully amazing. Or successfully. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Actually. It's, it, as I said, I walked out, literally could not get over how many, young kids were competing over that week. So yeah, the future looks bright then for rowing in New Zealand. It's going to continue to go from strength to strength. I, I, yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think the other the other one, and it's back to the coaching, is is they invest in their own here quite a lot. You know, very few, um, I say this as an import, um, very, very, very few non-Kiwi coaches. Um, we had an Australian um, up until a couple of years ago our men's eight coaches, I don't know if you would have remembered Tony O'Connor, he, um, he rode for Ireland. Um, and so he's coaching here now. But, but other than that, they, they really invest in their own and they educate and develop those coaches. And I think that is a huge testament to um, their success as well as, you know, as well as a cohort of really hardy young kids, because that's you know, the lifestyle here. The, yeah, and the lifestyle here for kids is is fantastic. Yeah. 
Great. Well, listen, Caroline, I think I've taken up more than enough of your time. I think you might have athletes coming back in off the water yeah. soon enough. Soon. So you'll be jumping from one, one, one job straight into another. So I would just like to say thank you so much. I feel like we could go on talking for another hour, no problem. So what we might have to do is maybe check in with you after, after Tokyo and see how things are going then. That would be uh, fantastic. Yeah. Great, great to chat to you, Bruce. Thank yeah, you. no, I, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your insight. And I think hopefully um, hopefully our students and maybe our, our other listeners as well will, will really have, have got some good nuggets of information from you there. So really appreciate that. Thank you very much for your time, Caroline. No problem. I hope so. 